Welcome to MHM Podcast Network on moviehousememories.com. Podcast for pod people. Our feature presentation begins now. golden age of the silver screen on the mhn podcast network where each episode we review a film from the 1930s or 40s or in this case the 1950s i'm patrick and i'm chris and for this episode we are dire- we are reviewing the blob directed by Irvin s yeaworth jr or i think his name is shorty shorty <laughs> i think that's what they refer to him as and starring steve mcqueen But before we get into our discussion of that, first, I'll do a quick summary of the film. The year is 1957, and the location is Phoenixville, a small town in Pennsylvania. Teenagers Steve Andrews and Jane Martin, who apparently attend Rydell High School with all the other 28-year-old teenagers, (laughs) teenagers, yeah, are spending time making out on Lover's Lane when they are suddenly interrupted by a meteorite crashing nearby. Steve wants to go look at it, and the couple heads off into the mountain hills. At the same time, Barney, an alcoholic old man who lives with his small dog in the woods, hears the meteorite collide with the earth right outside his cabin and goes to investigate. The meteorite breaks apart when Barney pokes at it with a stick, which is a warning that you should never poke at shit with a stick. (laughs) A mysterious blob of goo comes out. The blob attaches itself to Barney's hand and the old man begins to scream in pain. He runs off into the woods and Steve and Jane encounter him along the road. Steve and Jane take the desperate old man into town to see Dr. Hallen. Dr. Hallen is perplexed by the blob. He sends Steve and Jane back out into the woods to see if they can discover the origins of the blob, which seems like a bad idea of, hey, go see if you can find some more of this shit. (laughs) Dr. Hallen sedates Barney and calls for help from his nurse, Kate, fearing that he may need to amputate Barney's arm to save the old man. And then, of course, he doesn't watch the old man for a long period of time, (laughs) And and the blob consumes the entirety of Barney's body. Soon after, the nurse arrives, and then the blob consumes consumes nurse Kate and Dr. Hallen, the latter of which is observed by Steve, who has returned from his search in the woods. Steve and Jane go to the police station and inform Lieutenant Dave Barton of what Steve saw. The police are skeptical, but follow Steve and Jane back to Dr. Hallen's office. The foursome find no sign of the blob or any of its victims. Sergeant Jim Burt believes that Steve and Jane are trying to play a prank on the police and wants to arrest them, but Lieutenant Barton simply calls the teenager's parents and sends them home. Despite this, Steve and Jane sneak out after their parents go to bed to find proof of the creature. Meanwhile, the blob continues its slow death march through the small town. It kills a mechanic at an auto repair shop because, you know, everybody's often working on cars in the middle of the night on a Friday or Saturday. It then kills a janitor at Steve's father's market. Steve and Jane go to the local movie theater to recruit their friends to help them with their search for the blob. They begin searching the town. 
Steve and Jane notice Barney's dog outside the market and go to investigate. They find the blob inside the store. The couple hides in the walk-in freezer and believe they are cornered when the blob begins to ooze under the door. But then the creature inexplicably retreats. Steve and Jane escape the market and find their friends. The teenagers work to wake up the town and to warn everyone of the danger. Lieutenant Barton and Sergeant Burt arrive and find no evidence of the blob within the market. At the same time, a much larger blob enters the movie theater and kills the projectionist before oozing into the auditorium. The movie theater patrons flee the theater in panic, which alerts Lieutenant Barton to the danger. The police finally believe Steve, but they can find no way of stopping the blob. Steve, Jane, and Jane's little brother Danny take refuge in the local diner with the diner's owner. The blob engulfs the entire diner and begins to ooze under the doors and through the windows. Steve and the other diner patrons hide in the diner's basement where they become trapped. Steve and Lieutenant Barton communicate with each other over the diner's phone. Lieutenant Barton attempts to stop the blob by dropping a power line on the creature, but he only causes the diner to catch on fire and has no effect on the blob. With the diner on fire, Steve and the diner's owner use a fire extinguisher to put out some of the flames. Steve notices that the blob retreats when it is sprayed with the fire extinguisher and concludes that the creature cannot withstand the cold. Steve informs Lieutenant Barton of his discovery, and the police officer dispatches the local townspeople to round up all the fire extinguishers in the town. Armed with the extinguishers, the townspeople drive the creature off the diner and free Steve and his group from the basement. The townspeople use the extinguishers to freeze the creature. Lieutenant Barton contacts the military, who dispatch an Air Force cargo plane to transport the blob to the Arctic, a place which half the year spends basically as only water, (laughs) (laughs) which I would have put it in the Antarctic, where it would have at least been on land. Uh, And The plane drops the creature via parachute into the Arctic Circle. The film ends with the words, the end, which is immediately followed by a question mark. And that is the blob. <laughs> All right. I was counting the over under on how many times you, you had to use the word ooze. How many did I use? I, I don't know. I lost track. <laughs> I <didn't> think... <laughs> the you know, last time, though, I think was at the at the uh, grocery store in the freezer. Yeah. So you might you might have picked one up in the uh, <laughs> the diner, but I think it was too big at that point to ooze. I think it just engulfed at that point. Yeah, I think uh, at that point it was seeping. Not oozing. Oh, see, okay, okay, yeah. <laughs> so, the next step up. All right. I wish it. I wish it could have oozed or seeped its way and killed Danny. Oh, the kid. Oh my <laughs> so, God. Yeah. Uh, I, I I thought the killing the sergeant would have been nice too. I thought that would have been poetic <laughs> the, justice, but the the bad cop. Yeah, if you will. Yeah, the good cop bad cop combo. All right. The numbers on the blob. The blob was released on September tenth, nineteen fifty eight. Same year as South Pacific, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, No Time for Sergeants, Gigi, The Young Lions, and Some Came Running. It was made on a budget of either $240,000 or $120,000, depending on who you talk to, but it did gross uh, over $4 million at the box office. It was nominated for America Film Institute's 2001 list of the 400 movies considered for the 100 movies, 100 thrills list, ultimately didn't make the final list. And then it was nominated again in 2003 for AFI's 100 Years, 100 Heroes and Villains list. The Blob was nominated as a villain. It did make the list there as well. It was followed by a sequel in 1972 uh, produced by Larry Hagman 
called Beware the Blob, which is also known as Son of Blob, not Son of the Blob, just Son of Blob, uh, was remade in 1988. And another remake was being developed in the 2000, around 2012 by Rob Zombie and Simon West, but ultimately it has not been uh, got, come to fruition. Rotten Tomatoes has it at 68% critics and 52% audience. And that is the numbers on the blob. So, Chris, uh, you wanted to review this film. This is one you explicitly stated you'd like to review someday. I love this movie. I remember seeing this movie as a kid in about seventh or eighth grade at a friend of mine's house on when they used to do like the Saturday afternoon movies and things like that. Mm Mm-hmm. And my friend had already seen it, and he goes, oh, you got to watch this movie. It's great. So I went over to his house and watched it and, and just had fun watching it. I like, I enjoy this movie. It, you know, it, it is very much a throwback. I, I can only say I think I've seen it. I, I know I saw it when I was young on television, you know, like the kind of like late night movies on Friday night or Saturday night. And I remember watching it with my dad. And then I watched it once as an adult and I kind of you know just forgot about it. didn't leave much of an impact of it on me uh, watching it. I know I saw the 1988 one and I, uh, and I've shelved that in my mind someplace that I cannot recall anything other than Kevin Dillon's in it, but <laughs> I don't remember that film fondly and, you know, watching it for this time, you know, and we're also going to review this for criterion as well. So I watched it three times because I watched the film and then the two commentaries and I got to say, I get, I get a greater appreciation for the film and what they are trying to, to, to do here is that, you know, they're trying to cover two genres, the teenage genre, as well as the science fiction genre all at the same time. And I think they very successfully melded them together. I think they and kind of the horror genre as well. Yeah. So they kind of, they melded them all together. And what I liked so much about it is unlike a lot of the other, you know, teen angst dramas and things like that, that they had back then. This didn't take it. It didn't seem to take itself so seriously. It was just it kind of knew what it was. It was a campy, fun movie that didn't try and make political points or, you know, statements about anything. It was just a very simplistic point A to point B movie. And they they just kept it very light. And I, I thought that was great because at that time, so many of the movies that were coming out that were showing a lot of, you know, the teenager rebellion and things like that were always trying to be heavy handed or trying to make social statements or political statements or things like that. And it was funny. I hadn't, I hadn't seen this in years and I'd seen bits and pieces of it. But when I watched it for this podcast about a month or so ago, I realized that they really did just try and keep it light and straightforward. And I was, I think I was really appreciative of that. It was just, it was a straight movie that didn't try to beat you over the head with an agenda of any kind. It wasn't about, you know, the Russian communists. It wasn't about, you know, it wasn't really about Martians from outer space invading and things like that. It was a small town that was fighting against this one entity. And it kind of brought together these two different age brackets that had to work together to kind of solve the problem. And it was, it was just a light, fun way to deal with it. That's where I'm going to disagree with you a little bit is I do think they were trying to say. Oh, something. so I'm the, I'm the dick. OK, yeah, you're the dick. So, okay. <laughs> well, and I'll play it in words as I believe it's conveyed in the flaw in the blob. You're older than me. So 
you don't understand me, but ultimately I have a voice and you don't not listening to my voice. You're not appreciating my voice, but my voice counts. And ultimately my voice is what's going to be the hero in the film. And that's what the blob was, is that the youth, if you will, are somewhat disenfranchised. But much as you kind of pointed out, wait, 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 wait. who in this movie other than Danny were the youth? Well, well, the teenagers, they were were all in their 40s. Well, yeah, in reality, but they're supposed to be teenagers. (laughs) No, I get it. Yeah. So once again, the science fiction, right? They're teenagers. (laughs) So uh, Steve McQueen at the age of 28, which I believe was the same age as uh, what's her name? Rizzo was (laughs) in Greece. (laughs) Yeah. And it's a hard 28. I think the other actors were all hard. It's a hard 28. Yeah. McQueen looked like, wow, he's 28 going on 40. I mean, he looks exactly like he did in the hunter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Another movie that I love, by the way, Uh, which, yeah, I agree with you. That's a good movie. The hunter. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, that, that unlike most teenagers, they're not played for, although the police keeps trying to kind of trying to paint them as juvenile delinquents. They're not really doing anything wrong. I mean, the worst that they ever do is, kind of do that race backwards in the cars on the street. But, you know, that's kind of just like pranks and stuff. They're not really doing anything to anybody throughout the entirety of the film. Yet the adults always want to have this belief that, oh, they're, you know, they're kids and they're, you know, they, they we should just arrest them. And they're actually pretty good kids. You know, they're, 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 they're trying to save people. They're putting themselves out there. And it's ultimately uh, Steve played by Steve McQueen who figures out how to stop the blob. You know, he, he's the one who finally figures discovers that it can't stand cold and tells the, the adults, the law enforcement, how to stop him. Well, yeah, but in a sense, that's what I was getting at in that. Yeah, they do have to work together. And it wasn't just the kids that were solving the problem. When you think about it, they get the principal of the school that has to go and break the window to get in and everything And so they are kind of forcing to come together. But what I was meaning to say was that it's not it wasn't heavy handed. Oh, no. It wasn't like one of the kids has to die for the (laughs) adults to understand. You know what I mean? It wasn't it wasn't like in, you know, Rebel Without a Cause or something where it has to be such angst or anything like that. It was you're right. They weren't they weren't vandals, you know, they weren't, they weren't throwing rocks through windows and stuff like that. They were just doing harmless teenage fun, which at the time I'm sure was considered to be really, you know, over the top, but they weren't out there disrupting anybody else. They were just kind of their own little thing. They weren't trying to make this huge statement of you don't understand the, young. you had the one cop, you know, the parents were kind of the typical fifties parents, but they weren't, other than the one, they weren't all kids are bad. You know, it, it wasn't that mentality, which a lot of movies at that time were. And I think that's ultimately the success of this film is it's appealing to a younger audience where, you know, where a, a lot of those other films were almost appealing to an adult audience, you know, that, you know, the, a lot of the kids that are being delinquent because that's what people wanted to believe. But I do agree with you, the simplicity of the story. I mean, it is not a complicated story. It is bare bones minimum but done effectively throughout the entirety of the film. I mean, it just, it, everything flows together pretty well. I mean, there's a a few things here and there such as, you know, go up into the Hills and see if you can find out where this blob (laughs) thing came from. Like, 
okay, you know, why don't you call law enforcement or somebody to go do yeah. that? Go get some more, you 18 year old. <laughs> yeah. But, but uh, you know, other than that, there, I mean, most of it really flows very logically and makes sense. And, you know, and it, and it has a, a very, you know, a great resolution because everybody well, not everybody saved a lot of people died, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Tell that to the theater goers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you know, it's like, okay, now we got to get this out of here and drop it off. And then having the question mark show up after the end was, I mean, which it was, was a great, which was a great, which was a great end during the time. Surprisingly, it took 14 years for a sequel to be made and it sucked. But it, it, I, I think the concept of what this film was, was really, really, really sound and done very, almost to perfection. You know, even though it was low budget and they were getting... Un, unknown actors at the time, you know, basically unskilled mm -hmm. crew, but it doesn't look like that. Cause I, the whole time I was, when I was going in to watch this, I'm like, ah, I wonder how bad this is going to play against like the mystery science theater, science fiction crap mm -hmm. that I, yeah. I've seen many times. And I was going, wow, the, the actors are actually doing a good job. I mean, this is not, they're not chewing up a lot of scenery. They're doing, you know, they're doing a very respectable job in their roles and no one is, even though there's, there's, their caricatures, you know, that's, Oh, this is the cop yeah. who doesn't believe them. This is the good understanding cop. You know, it's th nobody does it like is so bad that I'm going, Oh God, I don't want that. I see that character anymore. They, they do a yeah. very, very good job. And, and I think this was an important thing. The fact that they did this in color really added mm -hmm. something to this film. Did you see that? Did you notice in there anything? Maybe I'm missing that they were trying to bring in some of that extra Cold War political, you know, mindset. No. Uh, so, so I didn't either. And again, no, 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 nothing that complicated. It was something, you know, it's, it was, that was the element of the teen angst type of films at the mm -hmm. time. And, you know, kind of like, you you don't hear me, you know, you, you don't understand me. And, and they're, they were conveying this through not, you're not hearing and understanding when he's saying, I saw this and it's out there and it's going to get us unless we do something and no one's listening to him and he doesn't give up. You know, he keeps, he keeps pushing it until he finally, well, finally, it isn't until really, it finally, yeah, it, it finally reveals itself to the entire town all at once. But thankfully he brought everybody to the, the danger zone downtown. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's make one big smorgasbord for the blob. Right. <laughs> Did okay. So now let me ask: Do you think that was because in, in watching the Criterion, I didn't realize that the production company behind the film was essentially a you know a Christian film company? Yes. A, and I had no idea. So do you think that maybe because of what the nature of the films they normally make, that might have relayed into it why they didn't try and make big statements, or do you think it was because they all seem to have very little experience in actually making a feature uh, from what I gathered from all the, the commentary was that this is really not the background of hardly any of the people involved with the production of this. You know, they were used to doing shorts and 16 millimeters and things like that. So it might've been either the nature of the types of films they made prior to this, or just the lack of experience in doing a feature that they didn't try to put these, overt statements into the film that they did just keep it simple. No, you know, you know I, th I think what you're saying is that their lack of experience played well into this film and not trying to overly complicate the, the story. You know, it's 
Yeah. There's a creature. We need to find it and we need to stop it. And that's essentially what the film is about. And, and, and I think, I do think the, the kind of the religious aspect of a lot of the people behind the scenes probably played into why the teenagers in this weren't juvenile delinquents. <laughs> they, 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 they were, you know, they, they didn't show them drinking. They didn't show them smoking. You saw Steve McQueen with cigarettes behind his back, but you, know, <laughs> you saw the smoke, the saw the smoke, but you know, that you, you didn't see them. I mean, the worst you saw them was making out in the opening sequence. I mean, that was basically it. And yeah, it how was, many horror movies start out like that? Yeah. So you think about it or music videos in the eighties, but <laughs> yeah, I think so. yeah. But, you know, but it was, as I said, it was done essentially to perfection. I mean, you, you did what you, they worked with what you could with it. I mean, you know, talking, talking about the commentaries, which we'll get into with the criterion aspect, but you know, the, you know, hearing the producer and the director talk about like, Hey, what we shot was on screen. You know, we had very little extra scenes. Like we didn't have coverage. And, you know, the, one of the, the actors who talks about, Hey, there's a scene where there's five people in it. And Steve McQueen has got his back to the, the yeah. camera the entire time. And when he's talking about it, like, yeah, they didn't have time or money to shoot coverage and do a close up or just to flip, you know, flip the camera over to the other side to get Steve McQueen's dialogue. They just played it off as a five shot and, or six shot maybe, and had everybody all there and it was like, wow, you know, it, it, how, how bare bones minimum this really mm-hmm. was. And, and, and I started noticing those things throughout the film where, where normally you would expect a cut, you know, for a close up for a dialogue. They didn't have it because they yeah. just shot it, pack up, let's move on. Yeah. And again, they, they probably have like a two to one shooting ratio. Yeah. You know? But it works. It, it does really, really work. And, you know, the, the I will still I, I kind of agree with the the concept is sound. I think it's a great mm-hmm. concept. I think it would make a great, you know, science fiction horror film. Now, if you didn't, if you didn't dive into, you know, kind of the graphic nature or, you know, mm-hmm. let's show a whole bunch of people being eaten alive by the blob or something. I, it's not necessary. Oh, they just CGI the hell out of this thing with, with gore and guts and, and over the top anime. Yeah. They would, they would kill it now. Yeah. I, I don't, you you would lose if you tried to remake this now. In my opinion, they would they would feel they would have to cater to today's audience and they'd have to go over the top with the special effects and things like that. And again, it just takes everything away from what the the story was, which was just a simple, straightforward storyline. And as you said, how they shot it, it was just simple. You know, they kept it by necessity, but it worked in the style of the movie they were making. All right. And, and, and very similar to another film filmed in Pennsylvania just a few years later, Night of the Living Dead, a mm-hmm. simplistic story, bare bones crew and staff inexperienced. Just let's tell this and, you know, we'll just move on. You know, like it's it, it, let's not try to overly complicate what that is. Uh, and although a lot of people like to attribute a lot of, you know, social commentary to that particular film you know, having reviewed that previously for Criterion where there went, no, we made our black, our, mm-hmm. our lead actor black because he was the best actor. We were trying yeah. to do anything with that. It just happened to be that way. Yeah. All right. Well, th- there's one important element that we have not discussed. And of course, we cannot move on without discussing the theme song, of course. And I, and I know that's oh, yeah. what, what you've been been waiting for. A, itching. 
<laughs> for a Burt Baccarat classic. I mean, I mean, uh, I, every time I see Burt in concert, if I don't hear him <laughs> sing sing the song, I, I, I I'm very disappointed. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's a letdown. And, and and was it Carol Bayer Sager who did the lyrics? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't, I, and I don't remember the story behind someone else who had originally done the original score, and then they got rid of it and brought in the Burt Bacharach version. I I don't remember the story behind that, which became a hit. <laughs> did it? Yes, they, they talk oh, about that. Okay. They talk about it in the commentaries where it became a hit and was basically more publicity for the film. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like number one hit, but it, it actually charted. Well, they did, they got lucky with a lot of things with the publicity for the film. And again, we'll get into this in the criterion, but just briefly here talking about the title of it, how their, their PR for it was to try and get all the comedians talking about it. And as they said, Steve Allen once a week would mention something about the blob and Bob Hope and the Academy Awards mentioned the blob. I mean, it was just a windfall of publicity just because of the title. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, and once, and the title does work because, you know, I was thinking about, you know, a lot of the films, you know, the day the earth stood still or the creature, the creature returns or, you know, revenge of the creature. I mean, all these titles, the blob is so once again, straightforward, simplistic, mm-hmm. but it catches my interest is like, yeah, what is it? You know, I, I'm very curious you know, what is this film about rather than the monster from 50,000 feet or Mm -hmm. 50,000 leagues or whatever, you know, it, 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 it really set itself apart with how straightforward it was in its approach. Yeah. It was a blob. It is what it is. (laughs) Yeah. You have a favorite scene. Trying to think about which, I mean, the movie theater, movie theater scene is to me is iconic when it's kind of seeping out of the, the movie theater. The the, well, the vent, but also the coming vent, out the yeah. door, uh, like as yeah. everybody, after everybody runs out and then you see it kind of come out of the movie theater, that, that is the one scene that I always distinctly remember about it. Even though I've only seen it a couple of times. I mean, there are scenes that I, I didn't think were quite as effective, you know, kind of like in the doctor's office, like, why doesn't the nurse just go with the doctor? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it's a little ball on the floor and it doesn't move really fast. You can get around it. Right. I mean, they're standing next to each other when she, you know, screams and then he yeah. tells her to go get the acid and she throws it on it. And it, it. I don't think it ever moved during that time frame. And then he's like, stay right there. I'll be right back. You know, and, <laughs> Yeah. I'll protect you. I'll yeah. go get help. I'm going to go get my gun. <laughs> Yeah, because acid no, didn't I, stop it. A bullet certainly will. <laughs> but that was great. Uh, the doctor scene was great. The scene where they're outside. Steve McQueen sees the blob all over the doctor crash through the window. That was a memorable scene. And then for me, it was the movie theater when it first starts coming through the vent and it kind of slices its way into the projection booth. I thought that was great. That, those are the two scenes I had remembered the most from when I saw it as a kid. Well, just kind of stuck with me. Yeah. And I saw a still of the doctor, um, the doctor scene in the window with the blinds that was cut because they shortened that up to keep it more mysterious. And I think that works very well. You know, once again, not seeing the monster at certain point in times, similar to Jaws, not seeing the yeah. shark builds the suspense much better. You know, you, you can see it in shadow or. You know, mm-hmm. or the implied threat that here it comes, even though you don't know where it's at, I think is very effective in building the, the suspense throughout the, 
the entirety of the film and save them tremendous amount of money as far as budget for special effects. Well, and on top of that, similar to Jaws, if they had shown it, it would look so hideous that you wouldn't be able to sell it as much. <laughs> yes. I mean, seriously. I, although, obviously, the difference in this case versus Jaws, in this case, again, I think the intent was to be a little bit campy with it. I mean, obviously, they could only do so much with the budget they had, but I think they kind of realized that and 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 just kind of knew that it was going to be a little cheesy. Yeah. But yeah, you know, if they if they had shown it more, it it would, it would just be ridiculous. But they didn't take the camp so far that that they were you know trying to get people to laugh at them at the same time. No. I mean, yeah. No, they were trying to keep it realistic. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things was everybody had always said. You know, was Steve McQueen wasn't really a name at this point, right? No, he I mean, was he not. was just starting, but yet at the same time, from what I had heard and read, it just seemed like he had quite the—I don't want to say diva attitude, but it's, you know, he seemed to behave kind of like a star uh, around a lot of the other uh, cast and crew. And he had, uh, from what I remember from the commentary, he had an Austin Healey he was driving. It's like, how much money did this guy make in the Marines? Because he seemed to be. <laughs> He seemed to be kind of at the top of his game when when uh, he was still an unknown. Well, I mean, he he'd gotten into the actor studio, so which was hard yeah. to do, and yeah. and he and he was a a working actor, but I don't think he was a starving actor by any stretch of the imagination. So I think he he was starting to get little bits and pieces here and there, little roles either on stage or. I don't. I don't think he'd been in another film. I think this was his theatrical debut. I mean, yeah. You know, I think a lot of his like kind of star quality is everyone how they describe him on the set uh, is just that's his personality. I mean, he yeah. was just like devil may care type of attitude, always living by the seat of his pants and no matter what, and yeah. didn't care. You know, as to many many things other than money, because that was his biggest gripe is he didn't get enough money from this film. And so didn't talk about it for many, many years because he wished he would get more money, although he was offered some. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He was offered a percentage, too. Yeah, he was point. offered a yeah. low. I think they offered him money. like three thousand dollars or a lower salary plus 10 percent. And he took the three thousand dollars or whatever. <laughs> well, then piss on him for griping about it. Yeah. Like, hey, you, <laughs> he you made a, a bad freaking decision. <laughs> yeah. Do you, how do you like the cabin? Do you think the casting in the movie was good? And one of the things that reminded me of, and, and we might get into this in Criterion also, but the way they talked about it in the commentary, every when they were talking about all the, the cast and stuff, even though this is obviously a much different kind of movie, it reminded me so much of Citizen Kane, where Orson Welles had all of his friends from the Playhouse Theater, and they all got involved. It seemed like it was kind of the same thing here with everyone from Valley Forge Films. You know, this was the the pastor's wife. This was... You know, the guy who actually owned the store. This, it seemed like it was like all these people from the uh, theater group that just came and did this movie. And even though it's a way different movie, it just kind of just kind of had that feeling for me. No, I, mean, I, I can see that. I, you know, if, if, when you, especially when you hear the commentary and they say, oh, this person's from this and this person's from that. I mean, they were just all working together. And many of them went to, on to work on the next project, which was the 4D Man uh, which Steve McQueen was supposed to do. Uh, they signed him for three pictures and then decided they didn't want to work with him anymore because mm -hmm. he was just kind of a pain in the butt. But yeah, a lot of the people in this uh, in the film went on to work on to the next two projects, which was uh, th the 40 Man and Dinosaurus or something. Mm -hmm. you know. And then I think the director 
and the studio kind of went back to doing their religious films and didn't continue on with that where the the producer went on and made other much uh, other uh, many other projects now do you think this movie would have had the longevity that it does had steve mcqueen not become who he became uh do you think that's a big part of why it has such a I don't know if it's a cult status, but it, it definitely has a following. It definitely among all of those genre of films, whether it's the, you know, the sci-fi or the the teenage angst or whatever. This definitely seems to have a good following and a lot of legs to it, even in this day and age. Do you think it would have maintained that had Steve McQueen not become such the star that he did, or do you? Th- and if he hadn't, do you think it would have kind of gone by the wayside like so many of those others did? No, I, I think it would, would have stayed, stayed the same as a cult film. I think it, but I, 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 of course, it had some aspect of that Steve McQueen becoming who he became, you know, through the 60s and 70s is it had, you know, always would draw the attention that this is a Steve McQueen film when it would get re-released. But it, it was so popular when it came out, or at least that's the way it's described. Uh, and then it had re-release status when it was, you know, billed with other kind of science fiction, horror, teen angst films for the next four or five years afterwards that it was just always kind of always circulating out there in the public and continuing to draw money over and over and over again. You know, so I, I think it would still have been a cult classic regardless of what happened with Steve McQueen's career. But uh, mm-hmm. that certainly probably had some impact of it. But I don't think this film would have been forgotten uh, but for him, I, I, it was it was it caught the attention at, at the time of its release, and then he springboard off uh, out of this film into a much bigger film career. Yeah, no, I agree. Now that was that was it for me. Like I said, I I thought it was cast really well. Other than again, they were <laughs> they were all you know in their forties playing teenagers. <laughs> but uh, I really enjoyed this. I'm really glad we had the opportunity to to uh, review it. No, you know I. I I was, you know, you wanted to review it and I went, wow, I've got that on Criterion, but you know, I was sure I'll, I'll, I'll review it with you, but it was not one that I've like was high on my list to do, but after watching it, I, I really did once again, and usually from watching something on Criterion, I get a greater appreciation for the, the artistry of what they're, what they were attempting to do at the time. And, and I thought they did a good job with it. I, 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 I like the simplistic story and sometimes those are the best because yeah. you ju- you know you're not getting bogged down in a lot of subplots or a lot of details are unimportant let's this is what we want to do this is the objective let's just get to it yeah and it was good it was well done all right well let's get to uh rating this film what how would you rate this film out of one one to five stars uh you know again because it's got a personal you know attachment for me or whatever i'm gonna go with the solid Low four, high three. I'll say four. Four stars. All right. Um, I go four. You know, I'm gonna, because, because of the time it was filmed, what they got out of the budget they had to work with, and the fact that they knew the movie they were making, they weren't trying to overload it with a lot of other crap. Yeah, the, it was cheesy in terms of the special effects and everything, but for the money they had to work with at the time and what they got out of it, it was straightforward, it was entertaining, and I enjoyed it, and I still enjoyed it watching it again for this review. Yeah, I'm going to give it three and a half. I mean, it's not quite four, uh, but there was a lot I liked about it. I would have told you before I prob- uh, before I watched it, I would have guessed, I would have said, eh, probably a two-star film, but I really mm-hmm. enjoyed watching. It was a, a very... 
a very, very entertaining film. Uh, it's there's a lot of really good acting for a low budget film. Mm -hmm. I was surprised how good the acting was. And for you're reading how little they had for a budget, what they did with things was just amazing. You know, that it's, you know, I don't want to say this is like the clerks of its day because it's about as far from clerks as possible. But, you know, it's you you put everything on the screen and you didn't hold anything back and you may do with what you had and it worked well enough. I mean, yeah, there's some cheesy elements when they're trying to electrocute the blog blob on top of the diner. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> eh, it's not the best special effects, but it, 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 I, I can forgive it. You know, it's a 1958 film. So, uh, you know, the, I've seen far worse in, in more modern day films. Yeah. 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 You're looking at it through the prism of, you know, 2020 essentially right. 2021 you look at it from the eyes of a 1958 teenager and they probably thought it was just the most awesome thing in the world yeah. the special effects compared to what else there was at the time it's true yeah uh, compared to plan nine from <laughs> just say all right well that does it for our review of the blob please let us know what you think of the film in the comment section and for our listeners over on moviehousememories.com please rate it from one to five stars on that on that page as well if you've enjoyed today's review please don't forget to subscribe to our youtube channel the mhm podcast network where we have many many more film reviews from yesterday today and beyond all right, well, that does it for tonight's show. Until next time at the big show when we will review another classic from the 1930s or 40s or possibly 50s, I'm Patrick. And I'm Chris. And that's a wrap. podcast is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The song Hyperfun is brought to you by Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com under a Creative Commons Attribution 3.0 license. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of the golden age of the silver screen, the MHN Podcast Network, and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment LLC unless otherwise noted.